This podcast is brought to you with limited interruption by Rudy Luther Toyota. Whether looking for an exciting brand new Toyota, a certified pre-owned vehicle, or getting quality routine maintenance and service for your vehicle, Rudy Luther Toyota is the place to go. Rudy Luther Toyota, the southeast corner of 394 and 169 in Golden Valley. Subscribe to the podcast Beyond Politics. They host some of the biggest names and smartest minds. Beyond Politics is from a former Democratic congressman who helped ignite Barack Obama's campaign and a former campaign manager and political columnist. They go beyond the usual chatter on politics, news, science, and books. It's politics and everything beyond. On Beyond Politics, subscribe wherever you get your podcast. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show for your Monday. Good to be with you today. Matt and Patrick, jam-packed today. Uh, Jeremy Norton is going to be kind enough to join us today. Uh, Jeremy is uh, currently, uh, he had Station 17 in South Minneapolis as a captain down there. Uh, He has written his book, Trauma Sponges, Dispatches from the Scarred Heart of Emergency Response. Jeremy Norton joining us here a little bit later on this hour. And then in the 4 o'clock hour, Matt Robison Robison is going to be joining us as well, talking uh, about his latest Newsweek article. Hello, Patrick. I see you you are wearing your Vikings jersey. That's right. Ready for tonight Um, Um, and the shellacking we are about to take at the hands of the San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, a lot of people are, well, including myself, are... A little more optimistic because the 49ers will be down a couple uh, key players on offense, but we still have to score on their defense, and that's probably not going to go very well. Has uh, Kirk Cousins stopped throwing uh, on uh, third and long three yards? Uh, and if he hasn't stopped doing that, uh, we're not going to win this game. <laughs> I just, I'm no math whiz, but if it's 12 yards and you only throw three yards, your entire game plan is that the defense is going to let you get the other nine yards. They generally don't oblige. So, you know, I don't know. Maybe throw the ball twelve yards. I, you know, I, 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 I don't. I'm just, uh, I'm just a sucker on the sidelines, I guess. Uh, did you get a chance at all to get out this weekend? I did a little bit last night. We, uh, we went to this Vietnamese restaurant nice. on Eat Street in Minneapolis, and the which bon, one? Which one uh, was Quang? Quang's uh, Quang's yeah. is fantastic, man. Yeah, the Bon Mi was life changing. I'd yeah. never been there. It was really good. Yes, it's very tasty. Uh, so, you, did you go out? Did you see any of the nice colors on the trees and everything? Yeah, I did that on Friday. Actually, I did uh, some uh, leaf peeping. And uh, it was <laughs> it's such a creepy term. Isn't <laughs> yeah, it? it is. You've just taken a delightful hobby and turned it into yeah. <laughs> I'm watching you trees. <laughs> it was a uh, really. It's been a. Re- it, it was kind of like. Uh, I mean, just you know, just in two days, and you know, you know, you talked extensively about that last week, but you know, pretty much went from green to everything's on the ground. Well, it. I went yesterday. Uh, well, uh, on Saturday night, I ended up over um, at uh, – right in Bryn Mawr. Uh, there's a park there, which is right off of 394. It's right there. It's Basically, it's the park right across from Lowry Hill. And, um, it, you know, we were, we were looking around there, and the leaves were good. And they were good. Some of the neighborhoods over there, stunning, gorgeous, just – you know, that's when you try to sell your house because, you know, you fall in love with the neighborhoods when, when the trees look so nice. But yesterday, um, I decided, okay, I'm going to go try um, Lake Minnetonka Regional Park. This is one of the three reverse park parks. This is, 
It's on the south side of the lake. I think it's into Minatrista, out Highway 7. And you got to, I think, turn onto 44 or 41. I can't remember which road it is. But you go north and it's right there. And I did the West Trail. I could not take a bad picture. I've had only this happen a few times in my my career as a you know as a, a person that's trying to take photographs. I've only had it happen once or twice where I could not take a bad picture. Sometimes it helps where you are. I was at I remember it was Rocky Mountain National Park. It's kind of hard to screw up a picture at Rocky Mountain National Park. There it is stunning views in every freaking direction. It is really gorgeous. Um, the same thing goes for. Um, when when you go, you know, like to place like I went to Zion. Zion, you just you you point a camera, take the picture. It's yeah, it's it's hard to even comprehend how beautiful everything is. The the last time I had this happen, where I came back and I just looking at the camera roll, and I'm like, how did I just not take any bad pictures whatsoever? And uh, I was I was this was about a year ago. I was in South Carolina. I went strolling on the Beaufort, the city of Beaufort. Um, their 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 city pier there, right on Beaufort Harbor, right off on the Atlantic there, and just was a nice sunset. Ended up taking a bunch of pictures. I couldn't take a bad picture. I could not take a bad picture. Every picture came out fantastic. Same thing happened yesterday. Just every picture I took, just gorgeous oranges and yellows and reds, just stunning. And yeah, one or two of them, some of the best pictures I've ever taken. I, I I'm not alone. I mean, I don't know if you've been up on social media. I've seen a lot of fantastic photos from yesterday. A lot of people were out enjoying that. I, I hope you get out and get the chance. I mean, it's probably – it sounds like we're going to take a cool turn here. And when that does happen, my guess is the leaves are just going to drop completely out of all the trees across the the, the metro area. So uh, I hope you do get a chance to get out there and enjoy that a little bit uh, because it is spectacular. It is horribly late. I was talking to a, an old guy. He said he remembered one year where all the leaves were out of the trees by the end of September. He said it was that cold. It was a cold year. He said it was like 1940s, 1950s. And he said, we didn't have to rake again after it was like October 3rd. Here it is. It's October 23rd. And I still don't have – I could – even if I tried to rake, I wouldn't get a, a pile in my backyard. I just checked the gutters. We're supposed to get some rain tonight. I checked the gutters. They're fine. I don't quite – this is weird. This is weird. Speaking of weird, go for football. Uh, I'm just going to mention this really quick and get the sports thing out of the way. All right. So, you know, oh, Patrick quickly throws his headset on there. Patrick, uh, why don't you give us your what, – what exactly happened, that one play that happened in the go for football game and, and how the, basically this the, the outrage over this call I don't quite get because it seems like it's pretty cut and dry as far as the rule book. So with about – a minute and a half left to go. The Gophers were punting. They were up only two points in the game at the time. It was 12-10. to 10. They were winning. And they punted the ball back to Iowa. It was a bouncing punt that sort of rolled toward the sideline. And the guy for Iowa who was back to return it was running over toward the ball. He was making sort of a, a circular motion with his hand. And this you know, looks pretty innocuous, but this is going to come back to be a big deal later. He picked up the ball, somehow was not tackled by about six different gophers, and takes it back for what appears to be an improbable Iowa game-winning touchdown that everyone goes, oh, Minnesota has done it again. So everybody gets confused because the officials say, we're, we're reviewing this play. 
And they spent a long time looking at it because the because everybody thought, are they just looking to see if he was in bounds? And it was pretty clear that he was. So, well, what's going on? So the official comes back and says the returner was making a gesture with his left hand. Therefore, the ball is dead at the spot he picked it up. So there's no touchdown. Iowa doesn't get that that game-winning touchdown, which their offense was as bad as Minnesota's was on Saturday. They throw an interception. Oh, they were worse, actually. We beat oh, them. They yeah, were. They, were, they, were, they were worse. They, we beat them. Now, okay, so and, and you get the, you know, the kind of the gist of it here. Now, I just want to I want to say this because, you know, an Iowa fan just showed how – here is one little acknowledgement for you for college football. The bigger the, smool, the school in the smaller the town – the more drunks you have at that game. I can tell you this from experience. I was on a flagship station for one of the Big 12 teams at Iowa State. I got to travel around with those te- with the with the the broadcast crew. When you were in a bigger city like Minneapolis with a with a big program there, generally you don't have that. But when you get into these small towns where they have these big schools, the only thing to do starting at 8 a.m. is to drink like fish. And I can tell you right now, there was a lot of people in Iowa that were drunk as skunks. And that that did not help the crowd. The reason you have this quick little rule is because it it has nothing to do with some nitpicky thing. No, this is actually clear cut. You just – you can't make any hand gestures because too many times guys would say – I think initially was you raised your right hand, you waved it above your head, and that was a fair catch rule, if I'm not mistaken. What happened was guys would start waving their left hand, put it over their head, and they'd wave it, and basically they would be able to pick up the ball and run into the end zone, which then led to the obvious problem. There were people who were calling for fair catches that got planted into next month, and they basically they realized that you can't have any kind of hand gesture because it if if you – if you if you do it and, and it's not designated as a fair catch, is be the case. Now Iowa's problem seems to be that they were told that the review, the instant replay review, was about um, about whether or not the guy had gone out of bounds. That was what the, that was what they were, they were upset about. What they came back and they said, well, he waved his hand. Their argument was, well, even though that's a legit problem and that that, that was it's clearly in the rule book. That because they only looked at whether he was out of bounds or not, even if they saw something like that in the review, they should never have qualified that. That has to be something that's asked for by the other team. Now, mind you, we're in the final two minutes, so I think in NCAA rules they can review anything they want. But their argument was that even though it was the right call, they should have never made the right call because, well, they they lost. It's just I I just don't know what to say about that. I I don't quite know what to say. I mean, it's and granted, I'm going to be blunt with you, Iowa, your Iowa people, because if it was the other way around, if Minnesota had the same thing and they got called on that, you'd be like, yeah, that's in the rule book. That's it. That, that you can't you can't have that. That's that's a fair call. So, yeah, uh, I just want to get this out of the way. It wasn't a game for the freaking ages anyway. I don't think anyone, either one at Iowa or Minnesota's, putting that on their game day package to encourage recruits to come to Minnesota or Iowa. No one is doing that. It was a crap game, 
But to act like to, to all of a sudden get home on I mean one of the reasons I didn't post that much this weekend is because I just saw the the, the constant belly aching from Iowa fans. Oh, we were robbed. Just relax, chill, get over it. Uh, 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. David is in California. I wanted to chime in today. Hello, David. Oh, hey, Matt. Yeah, I was interested in the weather you were talking about, but, you know, hearing about that game, yeah. I wonder if it'll uh, have uh, replay in the Akashic records. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> On the Akashic records, that's the... Uh, that's like the the book of life. Oh, you okay. Know, everything that ever happened and everything that will now, happen. Now we're getting into the far side cartoon. We're getting to the far side cartoon kind of level of okay. No, I don't think that's going. To, I don't think that that's going to happen. Uh, I, I I really I, I don't think anyone was proud of that. I don't even think the makers of football are like oh god this game. No, we're not going. We're just going to pass this one by anyway. <laughs> Hey, well, um, you know, I've been, I'm old enough to remember when the invasive species of uh, red ants, uh, army ants, were crossing the Texas border, and now they're up into Oklahoma. Yeah. So if you're talking about having a, an especially warm autumn, uh, you know, it's, I, I, I think the army ants are, uh, they may or may not have crossed into Kansas at this point. But there are invasive species that uh, are going to have a heck of a time, uh, or the the old original species are going to have an, a heck of a time facing off against the invasive species. Well, and, and um, well, go ahead, David, just really quick. Well, I was just going to suggest, you know, if you've got uh, gardeners listening, um, maybe you've got, uh, you know, the opportunity to gather seeds of the uh, native plants and either plant them a little further north or, uh, you know, do what you can to stabilize their lives because uh, this strange weather, uh, you know, it, it, it is climate change. And I, I don't know if you've had an influx of, say, woolly mammoths. You know, no. those babies, uh, you know, they, <laughs> they, they time may have David, gotten revived. David, though, time passed them by. Thank you, David. I appreciate the phone call. Um, well, let's you talk about fire ants. I remember that too, by the way. I remember when they crossed into into, into to, to Texas. That was probably in the eighties, and now they've made it all the way up into Oklahoma, possibly even Kansas. How about the brain amoeba stuff in the water that you're getting now down in Texas? Where you know it, it takes a unique situation where like someone's water skiing and they hit the water, and then the amoeba gets in their brain, and there's no cure. It's, they're done. That was a Central American problem. That that was not something that happened that much up here. And now all of a sudden it's happened regularly in Texas. And as a matter of fact, I think it's spreading to other other states as well. You have – I mean I, I don't know what else you can say. I mean the people that keep just – have decided to jam their fingers in their ears, close their eyes as tight as they can and scream, I can't hear you, I can't hear you. They, they are completely ignoring the fact that – I mean we don't have birch trees growing in Minneapolis, St. Paul anymore. Sure, they grow up north, but have you seen a birch tree growing down here? It looks god-awful. It doesn't look like they used to look. It looks like that, 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 that sprayed bark that doesn't, that, that doesn't look very good at all. Gray foxes, you used to never see gray foxes north of Mille Lacs, and now it's pretty much the dominant species. The moose are pretty much gone from Minnesota. And at the same time, you have the you know you got snakes, you have the expansion of snakes, you got crops that can't grow nearly as well as they used to. 
I don't quite know. I don't quite know what it takes for people to start realizing that this is, we have broken the earth. But my guess is going to be is when it becomes such a, something so apparent that even they can't deny it anymore. They're going to be the ones screaming at the top of their lungs. Some people want to play the blame game, but I'm looking for solutions now. I think we should make them move to Phoenix. <laughs> when it's 140 degrees down there, you can tell us how nice the weather is. I'm getting very little tolerance for you people because your ignorance is the problem, not the solution. And I get it. Your ignorance gets you praise on Twitter, but that's the only place it gets you praise. 952-946-6205. I want to handicap Tom Emery here in just a second on whether or not he's got a chance at the speaker's role. I don't think he does. We'll talk about that in a second. It is the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Once again, uh, Matt Robeson is going to be joining us here coming up in the 4 o'clock hour and just in about 10, 15 minutes from right now. Jeremy Norton is going to be joining us. Trauma Sponges is his book, Dispassage from the Scarred Heart of Emergency Response. Uh, he's kind enough to talk about that as well. Uh, I, you know, I'm – people – there's a lot of question here. There's a lot of people in the, the Twin Cities um, media there bringing up the, oh, Tom Emery is going to be speaker. Tom Emery I don't think Tom Emery has got a chance of being speaker. I don't think Tom Emmer's got a chance of being speaker for one very simple reason. He is not part of that MAGA crew, and they are as close as they are ever going to get to being able to have a say in the MAGA side in, in, in how politics are done. Um, I, I, I mean, I really do think – I think the days of you – know, Trump is, is floundering at this point. I, I think that um, – you know, they, they, there's no way in the world they're going to win the Senate. I don't think they're going to, not going to have enough MAGA guys over there. They have a few, Tuberville and, and Rand Paul. But, you, you, and, you know, and, uh, you know, who's the who's the the, the Zodiac killer from Texas? Um, yeah, him. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Ted Cruz. Is, Ted Cruz, I, I've heard. I've heard a rumor that he is the Zodiac killer. Anyway, but uh, the uh, – you know, you're, you, you've got the House, and even though that the MAGA Republicans don't have them, even the majority of the Republicans, they have got themselves in a situation where they feel as if they can force themselves in the leadership. And trust me, I think the ultimate goal here is the the ultimate goalie in regards to helping out Trump try to become president again. That even if the election is overwhelming against Trump, they'll just say, oh, we feel as if there's some fraud. We're not going to prove it. We just say it is. We're going to throw this out the election and we're going to go send it to the House where they hope they'll have enough of the majority there. And yeah, I, and good luck in the streets at that point. I think th- this country will implode at that point if they try to do this. But this is what they're trying to do. I could talk more on this. Let's play Scott McFarland from CBS News. He has a great little segment here. Uh, that he's got posted on Twitter. I want to go ahead, Patrick, air this. Hey, it's Scott McFarland. So if you're putting together a resume for a big new job, what do you include? How far back do you go? Because the candidates running to be the next U.S. Speaker of the House, second in line to the presidency, may have to talk about what happened nearly three years ago. Were they part of the group that tried to reject the electors in the 2020 election? Did they try to decertify that election? Because of the nine candidates so far, 
all of whom are men, all of whom are part of that conservative Republican study committee, seven of the nine voted to decertify the election. And over the course of this weekend, one of the two who didn't, Tom Emmer, Republican whip from Minnesota, has been taking some heat from some Trump loyalists, like Steve Bannon, who called him a Trump hater, indicating that this, nearly 1,100 days later, is still an issue, a pivotal issue, in a Republican vote, in a Republican election. So, perhaps no surprise, Team Tom Emmer is pushing back hard at this, saying that Emmer endorsed Trump in 2016 and 2020, was among the first to do so, that they've been doing outreach to MAGA world through this weekend as they try to lock down the necessary support to win the speakership. But to be clear, when Jim Jordan was the candidate for Republicans to be speaker, he also continued to raise rhetorical questions about 2020, saying there were things he was concerned about, about the election, this issue, these baseless election claims, and this type of what Democrats call election denialism remains vibrant, not just here at the Capitol, but down at the court, where January 6 defendants are having their cases closed, one of whom recently was sentenced by the judge, and as he walked out of the courtroom said, Trump won. It's still an issue. It's still a thing. Well, because this is all they've got. And the, the, the MAGA side of the Republican Party in the House will not accept someone who is not a full-throated Joe Biden didn't actually win the election Republican as, as the speaker. They're just not going to accept that. And this is why I think that Tom Emmer's got no chance. Now, I don't think any of the candidates are stupid enough to do what McCarthy did and allow one Republican to call for a a a vacation a vacate vote in the Senate in the excuse me, in the House. I don't think anyone's going to ever allow that to happen again because Matt Gates has basically caused you know irreparable damage to the Republican brand. But in my mind, this is just even more damage. Where all you have is Republicans who, and trust me, and we talked to Stephanie Miller last week before the, she did the the uh, uh, the sexy liberal show. This is a slow motion continuation of this. These people are not giving up. They still feel as if installing a president is more patriotic than electing one. And they don't care. They have pledged allegiance to Trump uber alles. And we've seen this play out over the centuries, where all of a sudden it's not the country, it's the individual. And it never ends well. It never ends well. So... The only thing I can think of, and, and, and I was kind of going back and forth in regards to what we do here with this and, and how, how do the Republicans get away from this? Because I still think – I don't think Emmer's going to win. I don't think anyone else that's on that list has got the, the votes. I think what's going to happen is they're going to get close to the government shutting down and they're basically going to say, you know – we will we will evict you from the House if you do not allow us to put McCarthy back in as speaker. That's, I guess, the guess. The only other option they've got is 20 or so Republicans just basically say, 
I'm, this is not the Republican Party I inherited. I'm going to vote. You know, I'll, I'm going to make a deal, strike a deal with the with the Democrats to put a um, you know probably not put Hakeem Jeffries in, but put a moderate Republican in with them. And I mean that will that will send the Republican MAGA Republicans into a fury, not because of the grand injustice, but because once again here they are. They are a vast minority in this country. But because of the system that they have created, they have placed themselves in the position to not only control the House, but to as well try to determine who the next president of the United States is going to be. And they they don't care about the election. They they just care about installing whoever they want to. So that's where they're at. I don't know where this goes. But, I mean, if, if you're asking me to handicap the chances of Tom Emmer to become the speaker, it's clear that the MAGA Republicans, including Trump, and he called Trump. I mean, I was reading the story today. He called Trump on Saturday. Within a few hours, he was telling – Trump was telling his henchmen to make sure Emmer is not the speaker. How many votes does it take? Six? <laughs> He's not going to become the speaker. He just is not going to become the speaker. And I don't know how you get out of this mess for them. But, I mean, every day, I mean, it, it, it is hilarious to watch the weekend news shows. It's hilarious to watch the weekend news shows and watch these Republicans come on out there and say, these Democrats have really destroyed what's going on in the House. And every host saying, what are you talking about? This isn't the Democrats. This is you guys. And they just, they, 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 they cannot explain their own incompetence. Because the reality is, is they're a broken party and they can't get they, they're not going to be able to fix themselves without the help of their Democrats. But just demanding the Democrats vote for a candidate is not how you're going to do that. I don't think Tom Emmer. I do not think Tom Emmer is going to be the next speaker of the House. I could be wrong. I considering how much Trump seems to be working against him behind the scenes. I just don't think there's a chance. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. We'll take a break. When we come on back, Jeremy Norton's going to join us. Trauma Sponges is the book. We'll talk to him when we do return. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. Jeremy Norton is a firefighter EMT with the Minneapolis Fire Department. He is the current captain. Head Station 17 in South Minneapolis. He has a book out, Trauma Sponges, Dispatches from the Scarred Heart of Emergency Response. He's kind enough today to join us to talk about the book. Jeremy, thank you very much. I appreciate the time, Captain. Hey, how you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Thank you. Good to be here. A quick question for you. Was your crew involved in the Kmart on Friday when that was burning? Were you guys out there as well? Oh, I mean, did we start it? No, we did not start it. We actually was my crew first in. I was uh, I was off on Friday. I was actually in Detroit, uh, but yeah, my crew was the first uh, first crew on scene there. Well, thank you guys. You guys do a great job, and and uh, you know the thing which is funny is as you know. Some is some some organizations, some entities within Minneapolis. Their, their reputation is not as, as stellar as it could be. But I, I think I, I don't know a person in Minneapolis that doesn't love the firefighters and love what you guys do because they, they do understand uh, the effort that you guys put in. And and I'm one of them. I think firefighters are great. So thank you for everything that you do every single day. 
Oh, I appreciate that. I think all, I mean, I think all three branches of the emergency services, you know, the police, the paramedics and fire are all, you know, generally well regarded on an individual level, but uh, collectively, uh, I think one of the three of us has been having a, a kind of tough run of it, but, okay. and the paramedics, I think are misunderstood for everything that they provide. So firefighters just have a big truck. So we, we get recognized easily. <laughs> well, yeah, you do a lot of things. And as a matter of fact, that's actually a, a major theme of this book is that, you talk about, I mean, th- th- this idea that the, the you know you know firefighters, EMTs, that you know, I think you mentioned it's like twenty percent of the time you guys are dealing with fires; the rest of the time you're dealing with other things, and and that 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 is a you know you you try to give a much more thorough and rounded view of what exactly the job curtails. That's no, that's correct. I, you know, I think. I try to I try to offer to the public to the anyone who reads the book an understanding you know not just of what we do but that we are part I mean as I just said like we are we are one of the three kind of the tripod of emergency services that are pretty much the only option that most city 911 systems have so for all the random calls that go into a 911 call center in Minneapolis and equally in St. Paul Duluth Red Wing Detroit Anywhere across the country in, in cities and towns, you know, with full-time departments, the firefighters go to, you know, fire calls, hazmat calls, but all uh, we, we assist and work with the paramedics in many times so that all the 911 calls that are, you know, at all medically based, those, those fill up our days and nights, um, and, and I think there's a good reason for that because we're centrally located. The stations are set up around town so we can get anywhere quickly. And if somebody is having a, uh, a critical emergency, which is the, the purpose of the 911 system, you want people to get there quickly to stop the bleeding or restart the heart or to carry someone to safety. You know, what, what I try to push in the book is that we're not like we're not stealing work from anyone else. It's just that there there is no one else, and so many of the calls that that police, fire, and paramedics respond on, you know, aren't aren't actually you know life or death or critical emergencies. But there is no other place for the calls to go. Like so, I, I try to look at the systemic across the board and look at how that then filters down to shape and influence and affect the individuals. Uh, and by the way, I can attest to this. Uh, in December, I got hit by a drunk driver. It broke my back. And uh, when, when the when the trooper got there, he basically said, well, it's going to be we, – we are a shortage of ambulances right now. So I'll yeah. get one out here as quickly as I can. But I had both Eden Prairie and Minnetonka Fire show up. And the chiefs yeah. came up to me and said, you know, I don't want you moving. They are checking me over. You're not bleeding. Don't move. Wait for the EMTs. And, and that was it. And they were that first line of response because not because of a failure or anything, but just, you know, there wasn't anyone else to be there until an ambulance got there. Right. And now that's and and, and those are those are kind of the structural challenges. And, and it's not like any city we live in. We tend to think that our our issues are singular, like like that kind of myopic view. But. You know, I've I've traveled to see family on both coasts over the past couple of years. The, you know, the the kind of societal strain is happening across the country because of you know a lot of issues with our healthcare system and the financial like the financial uh, imperatives that are driving 
for-profit hospitals and the ambulance services. And so there are fewer people doing the work to address more and more calls, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, and that's kind of the other part of what I really am am trying to write or address in this book is to, to, to show like the complicated nobility of a a career in emergency services, Mm -hmm. because it isn't just the stuff we think it is when we join. It's, there's so there's so many layers and there it's so much more complicated and and a piece you know the parts that take a piece out of our heart and really weigh us down are not in any of the manuals we might study while we're in rookie school or in cadet school you know and and that's and there we still haven't found a good way to address that because these calls keep coming in people like you keep getting hit by cars somebody has to show up and that somebody is us you talked about the training that goes into this you know obviously they they talk a lot about this but is it does it prepare them for the the, the rookies that are coming in the, the 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 amount of this is going to be there because i mean obviously there is a there is a tremendously human response factor needed by anyone who's – you could get called for drug overdose, medical emergency, fire situation, car into a house, whatever the case may be. You know, it's almost the empathy has to almost be on par with the strength and the courage to go along with it. You have to have this large ability to address whatever circumstance you walk into. How does how does the training uh, you know process that and prepare the, the rookies for that? Yeah, I think honestly that – I mean, I want to, I don't think it's, it's really teachable, you know, and that's, and that is one of the, I think one of the challenges. I mean, I write in the book that, you know, you think about police officers and paramedics and firefighters, we all join our respective careers. I mean, I will say here in defense of my firefighters, the police and paramedics just haven't taken the fire or scored well in the firefighter test. So they have to go to the other, the other <laughs> careers. <laughs> uh, or, or maybe not. Or maybe they, they actually like law and order better, more than just being a bunch of deranged boys. Ca- Captain, don't worry about that. I'm an army guy. We used to make fun of, I, mean, I make fun of the Marines, right, Navy, right. Air Force all day long. Don't worry. It's, it's tongue in cheek, guys. No offense meant. It's, it's, a, it's an inside joke for you, okay? Uh, but no, but yeah, but in all seriousness, the, you know, the paramedics are very highly trained pre-hospital technicians. They can, you know, they can intubate, they can provide medications, they can do all this really amazing stuff on like a rolling, cramped, you know, uh, emergency theater, operating theater on wheels. Police officers are drawn, you know, for a sense of law and order protecting the public. You know, firefighters want to fight fire and whatnot. And there's nowhere really that we get genuine preparation for all the things that almost fall under kind of a social work umbrella without any social work training. And, you know, you said empathy. And, and I think that's, I think that's really important because too, I think too many people put up a wall to protect themselves from the squalor and the suffering and all the hard stuff we see, but that, that puts a break between like the human connection gets lost. You know, and I think the other part of it is if we're if we're blindly empathetic, you know, we won't make it till lunchtime because it, all three of these are careers that are steeped in the suffering of other people, right? Every day, any of the emergency responders go to work, we are responding to people having often their worst or last days of life, mm-hmm. plus all the other just you know the the routine maladies and bad you know a broken ankle is a bummer but it's not fatal mm-hmm. right you know so it's all the other stuff but it is they're very very you know few like 
sunny, happy calls that I write about in the book because there really are precious few things that are objectively peppy or happy, right? Yeah. And so being able to make peace with that and carry on and find meaning in the world is kind of each of our individual challenge. You you talked about the, the calls you get called in on. I mean, talk about uh, a little bit more about you, you, two specific calls, which I mean, have fallen down to you, fire departments and, 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 and paramedics at times, which are Drug overdoses, mental health situations. These are situ- these are these are both cases where you know you're you're as you say you're not social workers. You haven't been you know necessarily given the, the training of this sort of thing, but you're having to be that frontline contact in cases here where you might be dealing with a drug overdose. You might be dealing with someone having a mental health crisis, and, and that is that's not. I can't imagine that that's something that's easy. You know, you have to kind of go through that a few times to understand what you need to do. Yeah, great. I think let's just distinguish those two quickly because the drug overdose, you know, is pretty um, objective and academic. We just like our job is to assess the person, uh, you know, recognize that they are, you know, in respiratory collapse, respiratory, respiratory failure, provide oxygen, ventilate them, take their vitals, you know, and then provide Narcan or assist the paramedics as they do it. Right. So that that's a pretty simple call. However, the sociological aspects of that and the fact that we are going and finding people every possible uh, nook and cranny in our, in, our, in our city where people are, or now where they're just doing, you know, there are a lot more open-air shooting galleries where we're finding people just, you know, splayed out on Bloomington Ave, you know, that we respond and it's, 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 it's taxing, it's emotionally wearing, but that work is not, you know, that is not that complicated, right? It's, it's just, it's draining and it's a hard look at people struggling. The mental illness piece is, I think, the one where as a nation, we are really in, uh, we're really in a jam because, you know, since the 70s and 80s, when kind of a well-meant change to how we treated and confined people with mental illnesses, you know, led a lot of people out of institutions, but the, the intended support the medication the family therapy all those other things went away so that's when we started seeing the like the legions of home unhoused or homeless and folks with mental illness in very complicated cases you know if you don't have if you don't have access to your meds and you're living on the street or in a shelter or a, under a bridge that's going to lead to a much more precarious mental stability so then we end up seeing people having acute crises on the streets and often those are called in as distress calls or possible threat calls. So the, the, the language and terminology that, that people, well-meaning or otherwise, start a call with, because dispatch doesn't challenge really what they're told. They take it you know, with this, the Good Samaritan principle that mm-hmm. everyone's trying to do the right thing, which means then that we roll in, the police, fire, and paramedics, to something that might be completely different from what we've actually got, which is somebody who is under narcotics, uh, having a mental breakdown, uh, diabetic, someone who's um, uh, with Alzheimer's or any sort of like the, the range of possible kind of disassociative or me- kind of mental struggles um, are, are vast. And we don't get a lot. We don't get much training at all for that. And th- that those have led to a lot of very avoidable but and tragic uh, unnecessary deaths uh, of civilians. 
Jeremy Norton is joining us. Trauma Sponges is the book. I want to there, – there is obviously a frustration that you deal with in regards to how you deal with the crisis and then how other agencies deal with the crisis. I, there's one here in uh, the, 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 the chapter about ketamine or Killaman where you're talking about you arrive, you're dealing with a guy who's, who is high, he was in an accident there, you're working with him, then you know, you're getting them there, you're getting him to the hospital. As soon as you get to the hospital, four guards jump on him. You know, and it just their, their their response is clearly very different than your response was as you're trying to deal with this. And you're talking about how you know you you obviously you can't get into anyone else's lane, but you also there's got to be a level of frustration where you get to a point there and it seems like the good work that you have done has just been unraveled. Right, and that you know, and that was a case from you know that was you know, and everything I write about in the book, except for things that are kind of legal, you know, matter of legal or public record, you know, are all kind of elisions and you know, and conflations because I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna kind of spill the beans on any actual people we saw. But the other part is that we've seen enough of these rep- repetitive calls that I'm, I, it's easy to kind of make a pastiche. Um, I mean. What we know now versus what we knew, you know, a decade ago or actually 15, 16 years ago, and I think the, the call that I actually was on that, that, that I based that on, you know, that we didn't understand that somebody who was under uh, a stimulant like a PCP or a meth, they're unreachable. Right. So so we really don't have many options. You know, we can try to be chill. We mm-hmm. can try to be clever. But really, and shouting doesn't work. Shouting continues not to work. Right. And and when you've got to physically restrain somebody for their own protection, say with a head injury or they might run into traffic, that we, we now are better understanding that that can lead somebody into kind of a respiratory uh, respiratory overstimulation, respiratory arrest, collapse, respiratory arrest. Or um, like you know, going into acidosis where they are fighting so hard that they're, you know, but they're not unable to move that they actually point like essentially poison their own blood, which is how his you know like across the country, many many people have died while in custody with no one like without anybody holding them down. Although sometimes that has also happened, right? Mm-hmm. And and but also we misconceive or misconstrue this notion of he's fighting. Right. So the man that we were trying to bring to the hospital was thrashing, but he was incoherent. He wasn't fighting anyone. He was or he was fighting the ghost in his head. Yeah. But the guards saw that and took it as their duty to stop and quell and control. And that's what leads to people dying. And that's where I think the education piece to understand. And then I, and I want to stress on the backside of that. We like you really don't have anything other than sedatives with somebody who is a, a danger to themselves, and that and that becomes a, a loaded uh, topic for a lot of reliability uh, uh, yeah. factor for paramedics. Well, and you're just in what you just described. There is the complexities you have to deal with, which makes this a fairly compelling book for sure. I'm going to mention the chapter, which is in you yourself, and I'm going to read. I'm going to read the title of the chapter, and then the one thing you put here: the assassination of George Floyd by the coward Derek Chauvin. And you put at the bottom of that. I recognize this chapter might be a draw the reader of the book, but I suggest reading the chapter 12, which I mentioned there, and chapter 14 uh, for a larger context. So the reality is, is that you are dealing with such. Thickly multi-layered situations and issues that, as you talk about um, you know, on, on all this stuff, it, it, there is never an easy call. There is never an easy sol- uh, solution. But you also have to be a witness to what is going on around you, such as that chapter about about George Floyd. 
That is, um, I, this is it's a, it's an eye opening view because I think especially if anyone is thinking about entering the fire department or EMT that they should read this book probably because I think it will give them a better idea of what they're in store for. I, yeah, I mean, I, I I mean, I clearly wrote the book for more than just you know my my poor children who have to listen to me process this crap all the time. Um, but um, yeah, no, I mean, I I, I would hope that it, it you know I it would it would be uh, beneficial, informative for people who are interested. You know, but honestly, I I also really want to help the public understand kind of the crisis in our healthcare system. So everything that you and I have talked about in the past 10 minutes in terms of kind of emergency response and what's happening on the streets. But the other part, you know, is what's happening in the homes, that the way that our healthcare system works means that, you know, not so much police officers, but, you know, paramedics and firefighters often end up as the kind of primary care for lots of people as we get, you know, get folks from wherever we find them to the emergency room, you know, and that also that our disconnect, our cultural disconnect from the end of life realities means that firefighters and you know, uh, firefighter EMTs and paramedics are in folks' you know, in people's homes with people who are clearly dying and their families have been unable to wrap their heads around that or, and the doctors have been unwilling to explain that, you know, stage four cancer is, is terminal by yeah. definition. Like there is, there isn't, there isn't going to be a miracle, you know, there isn't going to be a miracle survival. People may last longer than you think, which is why the docs don't want to run into people's denial by saying, likely you'll be dead in six weeks or six months, right? They, they avoid that, but they know it's coming and the families don't hear that second part of it. And so we, you know, we end up responding to homes and I take one look or the, you know, my crew takes a look at the paramedics and we know that somebody is clearly dying and the best thing would be for them to be on hospice you know, on a beautiful fall day like this to sit by the window and watch the leaves change as they take their final breaths because there's nothing that the hospital is going to do to truly prolong their life in any quality of life manner, mm-hmm. right? And that's the breakdown. And that's, you know, and that's what we talk about a lot of the moral injury that, you know, that have been kind of besetting the, uh, the emergency medicine and hospital staffs, you know, for years, but particularly through COVID and afterwards mm-hmm. is, bearing witness to this sort of helplessness and all the all, all the suffering and death that we are in, you know, like intimately connected to and yet helpless to change. Captain, i got to have to end it there because I'm running out of time. Uh, Captain yeah, for sure. Station 17 in Minneapolis, uh, it is Jeremy Norton, the book Trauma Sponges Dispatches from the Scarred Heart of Emergency Response. Captain, I, a great book. All my best. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time today. Well, hey, thank you so much for having me on. You take care of yourself, okay? And I hope your back uh, doesn't give you trouble. Uh, I, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Captain. We'll take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. I, that last point that uh, the captain was making was, I think, one of the most important ones, which is, you know, I understand it's hard for doctors to kind of try to convey to someone how serious something is. But if they don't, somebody else has to. And you're then putting undue pressure on firefighters, EMTs, to have to be that source of information. And that's not, I don't think that should be their job. That's, it is, it is an incredibly complex profession. And, you know, I, I mean, it, it's, 
I highly recommend the book. Check out the book, Jeremy Norton. It's Trauma Sponges. Hour two of the show. That's coming up next. Hour two of the show here on your Monday. 952-946-6205. 952-946-6205 is the phone number. Uh, we've got uh, Matt Robeson is going to be joining us here a little bit later on. His latest new article is in Newsweek. We'll talk to him about that and the failure of the New York Times with with their rushing to headlines. One thing we've learned about this whole thing with Israel and Hamas is that, you know, make sure you know what you're you're you're, you're saying here. And 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 you know don't you know don't necessarily be rushing out with headlines because you you almost can do more damage that way than than you know by it, it, it just is amazing um, what the New York Times did and we'll actually talk about that a little bit here coming up here in just a little bit uh, I, I this is just. We haven't had a kid par- a kid party get out of control like this before in a while, so why not? Law enforcement arrested a teenager who's accused of hosting dozens of other young people at a boozy birthday party in a Maple Grove Airbnb where a raid turned up numerous high-powered guns hidden around the property. This is a birthday party, you say, and you all decided to come armed. Okay. Ramsey County Sheriff's deputies traveled west Saturday night and broke up the bash at the cul-de-sac on the uh, 10,700 block of North 108th Avenue, where partiers ranging from age 15 to 21 were whooping it up. The 17-year-old boy went from five-star Airbnb accommodations to the county jail while the others were sent on their way in a statement Monday from the sheriff's office. I want to come back to that here in a second, okay? The teen had not been charged as a Monday afternoon in connection with the party. However, the guns and the alcohol were present. However, um, the, he was charged Monday as a juvenile petition with using credit cards Friday that he stole from a Shoreview man's pickup truck, an alleged crime that led investigators to the party that violated Airbnb's ban on such gatherings. Oh, no, not an Airbnb violation. Let's get back to those guns, shall we? <laughs> I think, I, don't get me wrong. Stealing the credit card's bad. Um, violating the, 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 the honor code of the Airbnb. Okay, sure. But what was that about a cache of weaponry? The petition identifies the teenager, but the Star Tribune will not report that name without that charge who are not charged with crimes of an adult. According to the sheriff's office, the credit card allegations, the investigative trail started in Shoreview, where the man stolen credit cards were used by the teenager at a nearby target where hundreds of dollars in charges were made that same day. Deputies tried the Shoreview charges to a tied the Shoreview charges to a similar crime in Lino Lakes, then that quickly led them to the Maple Grove short-term rental. Deputies went inside the home, found more than fifty people inside, despite the rental agreements allowing no more than ten occupants. Well, you're not going to get back your safety deposit. That's when things took a disturbing and dangerous turn, said the sheriff's office statement. The authorities, the deputies, found eleven guns, eleven. In plants, under board games, on top of the furnace, inside uh, inside unfinished walls, and tucked into handbags. The sheriff's office has yet to say whether any of the guns were loaded. Several of them were illegally possessed guns that are equipped with auto sears, small devices that convert semi-automatic pistols into fully uh, automatic firearms capable of unleashing dozens of rounds in a few seconds. Uh, who brought the guns to the party? The sheriff's office statement continued. We're working to answer the question. 
But one thing we know for sure is that we never know when the case will lead. And in this case, it was the lead the arrest of the credit card thief and recovering 11 legally possessed handguns equipped with auto sears. The number of parties at the Airbnb location increased during the pandemic, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. The company said people moved gatherings from bars to rented homes. Um, so here's the deal. I want to go back to one thing, though, about this story, which kind of makes me scratch my head a little bit. Um, the, the, the You sent the rest of them on the way um, of this, which is, you know, the others were sent on their way. You said you found some of the guns in, like, handbags. Well, wouldn't you know whose handbag that was? Okay, I get it. Um, the 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 gun that's under the the clue game, or in the bottle of the uh, at the bottom of the poinsettia. Fine, I get it. That might not be nearly as easy to figure out whose there were. Although I imagine there's going to be a finger fingerprint check on this. But when you have someone's handbag and they've got a a automatic weapon with a illegal converter on it. Why are you letting that person go? Because you would seem to have an illegal weapon. I, you know, I, I, you want the guns off the street, then you need to start charging people that got them illegally. And this 17 year old kid's in a world of hurt, although it'll be interesting to see if Mary Moriarty uh, will try to step in to say, you know, we're going to give him, you know, you know, he, he, he has to read three or four books and then he's off the hook. I, I don't know what, uh, where that's going to go, but I will say you, you definitely have to treat these guns more seriously because any one of those guns could have killed a lot of people. Um, I, I, I kind of, I want to go back to the, the, that, that story that was um, we were talking about. This is the, the the alleged meth dealer that was you know shot the five officers. There is the five officers shot in Benton County last week were executing a search warrant for meth. The court records show a search warrant filed in Benton County on October fourth states that law enforcement had reasonable suspicion to believe that Carl Thomas Holmberg and Doreen K Holmberg were involved in the possession and sale of meth. The warrant says that on January 2023, a confidential, reliable informant notified law enforcement they believe the Holmbergs were selling meth and using their vehicles to facilitate the sales. Now, a side note. January 2023. So I want to... You know that whole narrative that the the, the right tries to push? Try that in a small town. (laughs) Well, uh, apparently this guy was selling meth in a small town. From the initial reports, most of the neighbors knew something was going on at meth house, allegedly. Um, but here you have, okay, that the warrant says in January 2023, a reliable informant, informant notified law enforcement the Holmbergs were selling meth and using the vehicles to facilitate the sales. That's nine months ago. Try that in a small do- town. Tried and successfully done in a small town for many months, even though law enforcement knew what was going on. Now, I've often made the point, and I will stand by this point, that if a black family is in a small town driving through, stops by the local restaurant, and it's deemed they picked up one penny more than they are deserved to pick up out of the leave a penny, take a penny dish, 
that they would have five police officers at the scene within minutes, guns drawn, family on the ground, spread eagle, car unloaded, dug, drugs dogs going through. And then after they find nothing and sister, you know, you know, you have to understand we, we, we have to do what we have to do. Here is this guy. Nine months ago, they were like, hey, uh, the guy who has a record for dealing drugs, it seems like he's dealing drugs again. And you guys are, it's February, it's January, it's cold outside. I don't know if I want to do that now. (sighs) Tried successfully in a small town. Um. The 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 person in, purchased meth from the Holmbergs in the 200 block of 190th Avenue Northeast in Glen Dorado on two separate occasions early in 2023, according to the search warrant. Early, there was getting and that's not you know, meth. It's like, do you have any sugar and meth? Do you have any meth? Just sugar? Okay, I'll take the sugar. And uh, never mind. I'm just looking for the meth. You know, no, it's it's you had the cause. Um. Apparently, they're piecing the case together, although the informant was not enough, I guess. Uh, June 12th, September 18th, October 2nd, law enforcement officials pulled trash from the Holmberg's trash cans, which led to the discovery of multiple plastic baggies containing meth residue. Not exactly hiding it here, are they? A needle cap that tested positive for meth, blood empty butane canisters, and items in a mail address, uh, a mail address to Holmberg's at their residence. The search warrant was granted to the officials, the vehicles in the, the shed, the court says. Five officers were shot there. Um, the the standoff was there. They arrested uh, Carl Holmberg uh, after several hours of negotiations around 10.47 a.m. One of the things – this was the update they gave on Friday. This is the update they gave on Friday. One of the things they still have yet to state, and I'm not, I don't know what the answer is to this question – was did the meth dealer allegedly the alleged meth dealer were the guns he had legally purchased because that seems to be a a a, a bit of a concern here and we need to talk about the fact that five police officers got shot and might have been shot by a man who was convicted of dealing meth who for months the people knew was likely dealing meth and they went to put a search warrant in on him, on the alleged meth dealer, and then he was shot by possibly legally purchased weapons. And if you can't see the problem in this sort of situation, that that being able to arm a meth dealer legally is a bad idea, then I can't help you because you, at that point, and I get it, you're about to say, well, Matt, how can I determine that they're a meth dealer? I don't know. This guy, they knew he was a meth dealer nine months ago, it sounds like. He had drug dealing issues in the past. But needless to say, maybe you shouldn't just be giving out guns willy-nilly because it might be going to a freaking meth dealer, allegedly. You have this party where apparently only one person was arrested, but you found altered guns that turned them into automatic weapons some of which were in handbags. And the implication is every gun that was found had been altered, which means that even the ones that were found in handbags were confiscated, and it's good, get them off the streets. 
But at the same time, you now know who had that gun, for goodness sakes. Arrest them. We are going... We have such a cartoonish world when it comes to guns. Just such an absolute cartoonish world where you can you can arm meth dealers legally and there will be tons of people who will scream in my face Matt he was a good guy with a gun until he shot the five cops and at that point and only at that point can you consider him a bad guy with a gun well he was a meth dealer I don't think we should have armed him personally my guess same thing goes for this party we should have a standard that if someone is found with an altered weapon that turns their weapon into a vehicle of mass murder, well, you know what? You're going to jail for at least a night. We will not solve the gun problems of this country. We will not solve them until we start stepping back and looking at these situations and saying to ourselves, no, it's probably not the best idea to make sure a meth dealer can get as many legally obtained guns. Now, I don't know if these guns were legally obtained or not. The fact that they have not mentioned this leads me to believe they were. And the reason why is that if they were illegally obtained, wouldn't that be the easy? That would I imagine that would be the first words here because we have a media that protects the guns. Hey, don't... These guns are innocent. They were obtained illegally. He's the bad guy. The fact is, is that I have not seen that in any story yet. I have not seen one story which says these guns were illegal, which makes me believe these guns were legally obtained. A meth dealer was able to legally amass an arsenal, which was used to shoot cops. And if you can't look at the world and say, well, that's probably a bad idea then I can't help you, and no one can help you at that point. I I still think that, I mean, hey, if this guy got these guns illegally, track down where he got them from. And if he got them from person, we get the person there, throw them in jail for 20 years for every, for every gun they illegally sold. I, I, you want to stop the, 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 the flow of illegal guns, make selling one a crime with a mandatory 20-year prison sentence. Because and because I can tell you this, I've, I've grown up in families with guns. My family had guns. At no point would my father even think about selling something under the table. At no point. Because he knows that there are too many people out there that would take that weapon and they would use it in a b- bad manner. But because we can't just round everyone up and put them in jail for safety reasons, the reality is, is we should probably limit who gets the guns. And if someone is getting guns legally that's a meth dealer, maybe we should address the laws on that and say, hey, maybe we shouldn't let the drug dealers legally amass an arsenal. Or if they're getting them illegal, we basically find the person that got them, got them the guns illegally and we have put them in jail for an extended period of time. I have no sympathy or patience for people that illegally sell guns to anyone. Zero. Because you you are knowing the reason you are selling it illegal is because the person wants to do something with it that's not clay shooting. 
not pheasant hunting, not not shooting an elk. We make it so damn easy to get guns in this country that if someone needs to buy one illegally, you should know what that that you can't trust them. And henceforth, I'm sorry, lock them up. Uh, two very different stories, but once again, as much as as much as this infuriates the gun guys, the gun's the villain once again. And it doesn't matter whose hands it's in, it still is dangerous. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Take a break. Come on back. It's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. Wow, I, that that one picture I posted of the leaves from yesterday has kind of taken off. I mean, even on Blue Sky, I've got like 300 likes on it. Eee, that's weird. <laughs> it's, hey, what do you know? There are people on Blue Sky. Wow, who knew? Who knew? Neil Gaiman. Uh, 952-946-6205. So I'm going to ask a question here, and I want everyone to think about this question. Is it time for us just to turn off the ramp lights? On the inter- on the on the exit ramp entrance ramps onto the highway, is it time for us to do that? Not the exit ramps. We should keep those on, but the one the, the entrance ramps onto the highways. Is it time for us to turn them off? I say this because in the post pandemic commute world, th- there are so many people who just do not even stop for them anymore, and. It is it's frustrating because there have been times because what what happens, especially if you get into a line where there's a a substantial weight to get onto the highway, you've got, say, 12, 15 cars on each side that you generally will have people start, you know, that as soon as they get up there, they'll they'll go through even though it's not their turn. And I've been in the lane where, yeah, all of a sudden I've moved up six, seven cars, but I've also been in the car, the lane where all of a sudden I'm having to wait you know, quite a bit longer than everyone else is because I'm following the law. No one is enforcing entrance ramp lights. No one is. And they know it and people know it. And it's part of a larger problem. I mean, I, I'm going to say this and I, I every time I say something of this vein, it's it has a tendency of being controversial, but it's, it's the truth. I, I notice when you get into wealthier a-type personality neighborhoods, there are a tremendous amount of people that run red lights just on residential streets. You know, that, and, 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 you know sure, you get the, the cases in Minneapolis where people are stealing a car and they're running all these lights. But I'll tell you what, I see far more people running red lights in Eden Prairie and in, in Minnetonka at times than, I, than, I, than are happening. I can't believe they're happening with any kind of consistency at the level there. I mean, I, have been, I, was, at, I was at a light yesterday in a wealthy suburb and we were waiting on the red and the guy basically right ahead of us just you know you could tell looked left looked right didn't see a cop went right through the red light they didn't care and this is becoming a problem but where it's really a problem and it's really a big problem is these entrance ramps and so all you're doing is frustrating the people that are following the rules you're not there's no any kind of retribution for the people who are are not following the rules and so maybe the problem here is are the lights are the lights the problem just turn the dang lights off 
And I get it. Well, Matt, then we're going to have traffic. I said, well, yeah, but no one, if, if people aren't obeying the, the, the lights anyway, what, what's the good of it? And I don't know. Maybe is it time for us? Are we a large enough metro area that we need to adopt a, you know, a new department, a traffic police department that basically just, you know, gives citations for running red lights or illegally parking or something like that? Is that where we're at? Are we at a point where we need to create a new department there because the the regular police departments and the state patrol, they're so overwhelmed they just can't do anything? I don't know, but they're useless now. All this infrastructure, all these these traffic lights, these flashing lights that are flashing there, it's wasted infrastructure. It's wasted money. It is just not going to – you've gotten to the point where there are a lot of people who just ignore the lights. And like I said, I can't tell you how many times I, I'll go on out there and I will – I'll be somewhat livid because – you know, I'm watching guy after guy after guy in the one lane. I'm in the the lane of all the people who are, you know, the good light obeyers. And the other lane is apparently all the non-light obeyers. And they're all zipping on through. I mean, sometimes, hey, heck, right over here, right on Valley View 494. I mean, sometimes there's a state patrol car up there and then all of a sudden everyone's Johnny followed the law. But if if it's not, they, they, they they're not going to stop. They don't care. They go flying in there, three or four per light. There are times I'm out on Highway 7 at 169 on those lights where the lights will be flashing and no one at all is stopping at all, not even tapping a brake. They're not flashing. They're, they're, they're in cycle. You basically you have to stop. No one does. What's the point of them anymore? Because you're not regulating traffic, it doesn't seem like. And... All it's doing is making people mad. So I, maybe it is time for us to, A, stop building the things and stop wasting. I mean, if no one's going to use it, why are why are you putting a light on a ramp if no one's going to obey it? Why? That's just a waste of money. That is a tremendous waste of money. Or else find some way to actually enforce the damn things. And I know when they first came out with cameras on lights that they were unreliable and people were making arguments, but they've gotten much better at those. Maybe that's what you do is in, if I can if I can drive to freaking Illinois and I hit their toll lanes and they basically just send me a they, they basically just send me a bill saying, hey, here you go. This is what you owe us for tolls. How can you not have something like that set up on these lights? And sure, I know there are some people out there like, well, Matt, I mean, do we really need the police state? I don't know. If you got a light out there, you're supposed to stop for it. Isn't that what the law is? Like I, 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 I say that a lot, like I said. But you have people who will like steal a car and just drive recklessly through the lights. If you've got more people just running red lights just because they're inconvenienced and they don't want to stop for them, isn't that just as much of a problem? Isn't that just as dangerous? The the ramp lights, I just don't know what the worth of them is anymore. I mean, I've made the argument anyway. You, you probably should just turn them off during the day anyway. You know, a, a light sitting in flashing yellow is, is doing nothing for anyone outside of wasting money. But I I just – I think that it's it's time for us to reevaluate whether these things are even – if you're not going to enforce them, 
if you're if there's no consequences for running them, if all you're doing is is upsetting the people who are trying to obey the law, then maybe the best thing for us to do is just turn off the switch and say, well, if the road's back up, the road's back up. That's what it is. 952-946-6205, 952-946-6205. Matt Ro- uh, Robeson is going to join us. And when we do return, he's got the latest editorial ripping on the New York Times in Newsweek. We'll talk to him about that when we do return. It is the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. Matt Robeson is kind enough to join us right now. Uh, we've had him on before. He has a latest uh, opinion piece here in Newsweek. We'll get to that. Of course, he is a podcaster as well, uh, which I highly encourage you to uh, check out. Hi, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's really fun to be with you because I got to tell you, after we ran our interview together in the Beyond Politics podcast of my show, people loved it. People were like, you know, the listenership was awesome. Uh, I think some fans of yours have come over to me and maybe vice versa. Well, I, I would I would I would I, I hope that that didn't happen. I, I've seen my fans uh, and I apologize about that. No, I'm just kidding, guys. No, it was a lot of fun. And you want to know the truth is, I think that as as I've heard before, it just as being unapologetically Democrat is is refreshing nowadays it's it's nice to to like i'm not gonna i'm not gonna apologize or act like it's a there's there's a valid other side of the cause whether it's you know health care for all or feeding the hungry or quality education no these are these are one-sided issues you're either get for them or against them i have i i'm for them i'm for quality sanity and society that's why i'm a democrat and i don't i think that that's why it, it, it resonates somewhat so thank you it was very nice to be on your podcast uh, it was absolutely a pleasure, and I agree with you that people are hungering for something that's straight talk, not straight in like you know the newfangled sense, but like something that it is unapologetic and that doesn't get involved in some of the media insanity that I know we're going to talk about today that I was trying to point out in my article. But it's very, very hard to get any piece of news, any piece of analysis that doesn't feel like it's it's skewed mm-hmm. that it's. It's kind of being tugged at by business interests and social media interests and all kinds of other – can I say crap on the radio? You can say crap, yeah. yeah it's, okay. It's, hey, yeah. We say that here all the time. Good, good. <laughs> uh, I want to preface this discussion just very quickly. All right, everyone, what happened when Hamas attacked Israel, that was horrific. You, you know, I, I it, it just – you know, the slaughter at a music festival, kidnapping people, killing people in their home, 22 dead Americans. What Hamas did was atrocious. We can anyone can sit there and say, you know, Israel has a right to exist. Do they do everything right? Of course not. And we can have discussions about that. We can also talk about the condition of the Palestinians and where they and how and how they've been treated. Obviously, that's a point here. But there is no discussion here that what Hamas did was atrocious. The people, there are people, including the Pope and many other who are being very critical of the heavy handed response by Israel back. We can have a discussion about these things, but this let's make sure we get that out first, that this was a horrific attack by Hamas on Israel. I, I have a hard time imagining this even happening without some sort of inside information. I'm looking at Russia, frankly. But that that aside, that is a horrible thing that's happened. Now, that being said— I'm so glad you said that, by the way. Uh, I, I, I wish more progressives could simply enunciate—I'm saying this like, you know, like— within the family here, right? Yeah. I, I wish more progressives, more Democrats could just say what you just said, Matt, 
you know, it, it's possible to hold both of those thoughts in yep. your mind at the same time. Absolute horror at an atrocity, at, at a war crime level atrocity by a terrorist organization. And to say, we disagree with many of the actions that the current Israeli government has taken and the people acting on its behalf. And we wish that they would be wise mm -hmm. in, in their response going forward because we value innocent lives and there are innocent lives in Gaza. I say this as a Democrat, as a liberal, and I'm Jewish, by the way, for what it's worth. I can say all of those things. And it just, it, it, it's very hard for me to see so many Democrats fail to be able to say something as, as straightforwardly as you did. Well, and there's there's too many other people as well that um, Hamas is a terrorist organization. That's just that's it's the epitome of a terrorist organization. Not all Palestinians are Hamas, for God's sakes. And you, you just sit there and, and whenever I see someone say all Palestinians are responsible, I was like, no, that you're that is that's that's just as bad rhetoric as anything else. There's a lot of people that are just trying to freaking live their lives who, because of this terrorist group, have seen their lives upended. It is – there are no easy answers. There's no easy solutions. You can basically, you know, look at this from a neutral point of view. And at the end of the day, I think we all can agree what Hamas did was horrible to Israel, and we have to look at where we go from there. Now, your, your editorial, your opinion piece in Newsweek, you go after the New York Times as someone should because specifically there was this, you know, errant missile – by the Palestinians that smacked into the parking lot of a hospital, ended up killing a lot of people. And there was very quickly a narrative that was put out before anyone knew exactly what had happened, that Israel itself had struck this hospital. We now know through the through what exactly had happened that no, this was a it was a a Palestinian mis, misshot Palestinian missile that hit their own hospital. That's what caused it. That's the case. But the New York Times didn't do their due diligence, did they? A hundred percent. Exactly right. And much like my position on this, when I offer criticisms, a little bit of pushback within the family to Democrats, to liberals, to progressives, it comes out of a constructive place. I want to tell you that I grew up in Manhattan. Mm -hmm. I grew up in New York City. I when I didn't have the money at times as a young teenager, I loved the New York Times. I revered the New York Times so much. I used to know an old street trick with the vending machines in New York. <laughs> I don't want to get caught up by the cops here, but I may or may not have taken advantage of that to pop open those machines and get my New York Times. And yes, I would refold it back afterwards frequently to put it back because I just wanted, I needed to read it. With great power comes great responsibility. The New York Times is the flagship media organization on earth. It is the one that other media organizations look to and should look to. They set the tone and their coverage on its own eclipses all the coverage of all the other organizations out there. So if you can imagine after 9-11, if the New York Times had taken a press release from Al-Qaeda and run with it, literally run with it after hours claiming that the U.S. had committed an atrocity, it's it's an unconscionable thought. It's it's not even an experiment worth entertaining in our minds. That is what the New York Times did here with a release from Hamas that they credulously ran with. Their their headline was "Israeli strike kills hundreds in hospital, comma Palestinians say." And I want people to read the Newsweek article. I break that down 
um, as a writer, as an editor. I can tell you that it is horrible English that no editor worth their salt should accept. But it's, it's what's underneath it that bothers me so much. And I, I'll just close on this thought. You and I have talked before about how horrible Fox News is, the, the damage that conservative media is doing to America, is doing to our brains. The New York Times and other flagship mainstream media organizations have a responsibility to be different, to actually uphold journalistic standards. And when they fall apart, it is really troubling. It's really troubling. It's, an, it's a critical function in America and for our democracy. And unfortunately, this one has had some real and devastating and immediate tragic consequences. And I'm afraid that the consequences are going to continue to linger for months to come. You brought up the New York Times, BBC, um, uh, public radio, public television here in the United States. Uh, I would I'd make it even maybe even CNN to a point. But I mean, really, if you I'm going to bring in the BBC, because if you're looking at worldwide news as well, they're, they're a bellwether standard uh, as well. And when they make a mistake and they have made mistakes. No one is harsher on themselves than them. They will very call. They're very clearly call it out. And maybe, I mean, and I, I know that we can probably pull out a case here or there where they might not have you know, been the case. But they would have never put this forward. I don't think this this headline would have ever happened on BBC. Period. But if it had, they would immediately pull it down. And on every freaking signal they have across the globe, they would have apologized for it and said that it was wrong. That's, you know, without getting too much into your opinion piece, because we do want people to read it and I'll link to it on, on the social media a little bit later on. The New York Times is not exactly owning this mistake. No. And what you saw them do was a series of sorry, not sorry backpedals in the hours after their initial headline that I just read out to you. And the backpedals, which I catalog in the article, were sort of this mealy mouth hash of you can't just come out. And it's it's like when you give someone an apology, it's like. I am sorry if anyone was offended yes. by my actions. It's like yes. that's not an apology. And now they've come out with their uh, non their their biggest non apology apology. Five days after my piece and after this whole thing unfolded, they put out what they call an editor's note. Well, there's a euphemism for you. How about a oh my gosh we screwed up? Yeah. How about that? And they admit to what we've known, what was in my piece, what we've known for five days here. I'm not claiming credit, by the way, for the th fact that the Times did this. But they they own up to the fact that, gee, we did something bad here. There were immediate consequences. Two people died in violent protests in the aftermath of the coverage that they and other flagship media organizations led. Because the lie makes it halfway around the world before the truth even gets its pants on. And in this case, that's what happened. And based on the lie, based on a Hamas, a terrorist organization's press release, people took to the streets, they burned buildings, two people were killed, and the New York Times is still not owning up to it. They're saying, oh, gee, we should not have put out that headline and we will try to take steps to make sure we don't do this kind of thing in the future. How about, we're sorry. Mm -hmm. We really did a bad thing here. We're going to change. People will accept that, but you, you got to own it first. And I, I just, I don't want to make it seem like I'm literally being the grammar police here, but it's not just that people died, which is tragic. It's that an impression has now set in on the street around the world that's going to take months, if not years, to undo, and that could cause real significant harm and further inflame the situation with the war. And 
that would be incredibly tragic. And the New York Times has to own that. Well, and and, and this is anytime you're in a conflict zone, especially in the Middle East, you cannot just run with a headline without doing the due diligence. I mean, we, we have Ukraine and Russia right now. And, you know, they, you know, sure, you have the right wing outlets that are basically like, well, Russia's just a misunderstood person here. But at the same time, there has been I, – I, and from a lot of media outlets, I, I commend them just not to take the Ukrainian press releases and run with them in a way to just counterpoint that. They, they, there has been some level of due diligence. This was – I mean, especially to be so wrong on it, there is a responsibility by a major news organization that if you are sending people in there to cover things, you cannot just run with headlines just because – you think that's what's happened. You have to know before you write the headline. And it is a little bit like this is an old-fashioned metaphor. You remember clocks, like analog clocks? Yes. Grandfather clocks. You know, yes. we're of a certain age. Well, clocks used to chime on the hour, and at midnight, noon, you'd get 12 chimes. There's an old saying that this kind of situation is like the 13th chime on a clock. It's not only wrong in itself. It calls the underlying mechanism into question. And you have to ask about the whys of all of this. Now, the Times has been subjected and other media organizations to a relentless campaign from Fox News yes. and their Republican henchmen of, you're all woke. This is all wokeism. I'm not willing to grant that yet. I'm still going to stand up and defend these institutions. They're not Fox News. They are fundamentally different. I don't think it's necessarily wokeness, but I do think it's weakness. I do think that they are being responsive to financial pressures and political pressures and the loudest voices, the most extreme voices. And they know that nowadays it's all about engagement on social media and they're being responsive to that. And by the way, if you read in their non-apology apology today, they cite that. They cite the fact that, huh, we came under some pressure here from Twitter. Believe it or not, Twitter was what the, the institution, the platform that called this out, that brought it to my attention. When Twitter is correcting your yeah. journalistic practices, yeah. look in the mirror, people. Well, you bring up something here which is so important. This is why this is such a major fail. And I, we have seen it in newspaper and newspaper across the country. Back in the 90s, when Fox News started getting traction, there came this mentality that unless you're printing Republican Party press releases as verbatim fact that you're part of the liberal media, the, the, the they'd call the Star Tribune the Red Star, the, the, the communist rag. And at, what I have noticed is that the news outlets that stood up to that are still the ones that have kind of the bellwether of, of – of the high watermark of, of the integrity still left, that it's the ones that basically is like, well, we'd like to report the truth, but have you seen our Twitter followers? They're angry at us. You know, it's like, okay, that should not matter to you. You're a news outlet. You're not the blockbuster movie awards. You know, you, you, it is this, this false notion that because there's a howler monkey exhibit on the right, screaming at you to basically do anything or else we'll throw our feces at you. You don't curtail yourself to that. You have to basically hold yourself to the standards that you've always been there because the minute you start caving to that is the second you're gone. 
Because it's in the right wing's interest yes. to say, see, it's all the same, a plague on both their houses, you know, like it's it's the ultimate whataboutism. And once you're smat, you are so spot on. Once these institutions, the Times, CNN, Washington Post, once they fall into that trap, then all hope is lost. And it reminds me a little bit of an experience. I went to the Holocaust Museum in Israel 20 years ago, Yad Vashem, which is a harrowing experience for anyone, of course. And I was part of a congressional staff delegation there when I was a congressional staffer. We had a bodyguard because we were a congressional staff delegation. The bodyguard was a man named Galad. He was a former Mossad operative. And I saw a photo of former concentration camp inmates who had been liberated, now holding captive their Nazi jailers, holding, holding them Hot, uh, uh, captive, you know, guns trained on them. And I turned to Galad and I said, I don't know how they have the self-restraint to not attack them after everything they've been through. And this man, who has clearly been through some stuff in his life, turned to me and he said, well, that's the difference between them and us. And as soon as we lose that distinction, and obviously that applies to the current war between Israel and Hamas. Mm -hmm. But as soon as we lose that distinction, and as soon as the media loses that distinction, and they start to behave like Fox News, willing stenographers for a certain point of view, and in this case, willing stenographers for a recognized terrorist organization, then all hope is lost. Once that distinction goes, then we are in real trouble. Yeah, considering these people just want narrative validation, if you give that to them, you will never get your credibility back. And it's unfortunate because there are so many news outlets that have tumbled down that road because they feel as if, well, they're screaming at us loud. And yeah, part of it, you brought up finances. Part of it is the money. You know, people saying, well, I'll pull my advertising. You know, you have to have the guts to stand up for your integrity. And, you know, the reality is, is, is it, it, there are too many people that – that you know in the in the media industry that are more concerned about the the twitter you know feedback the comment section you know will the republicans yell or yell at us or will some you know as one entity yell at us the reality is, is that shouldn't matter you should just report the news and if you're doing that then as, as a lot of great news people will say everyone's mad at you because you know you're you're truly doing it neutrally and that's what i think the, the goal should be well Look, I can't defend the New York Times or any of these other institutions against all charges of wokeness. Yes. There have been instances of wokeness, okay, by any definition. I know that's a that's an invented, you know, right wing term, but let's just let's just leave it as it is, right? Something that falls in that universe of what you could call wokeness. Yeah, there have been incidents. Look, the former lead COVID reporter for the New York Times, Donald G. McNeil Jr., has been a multi-time guest on my show on Beyond Politics after he was fired by the New York Times for an incident that I, I think it's worth reading about. It's sort of the definition of kind of editorial staff newsroom panic over potential charges that someone might have a misperception. It was a kind of a, it was a case of wokeness. OK, these things do happen. But they are the exception, I still think, that proves the rule. I still think that there is still the media is still, pro, and I mean the mainstream media, I don't mean the right-wing propaganda outfits. The real media is still providing such a critical service for us. And it, it's, it, it's something that we have to kind of cherish and hold on to. That's why I say, I don't think this incident was wokeness. 
I think it was weakness. I think it's what you just said. I think it's them responding to financial incentives and knowing that the money-making portion of the New York Times these days is the subscription model to their online service. That's where their bread is getting buttered. They're not making money from modern-day versions of me, like, you know, going to the vending machines, right? They're not, they're not too worried about people like the teenage version of me popping over those machines and, and taking some of the physical papers. It's all online. That means engagement, social media, and it means buzz. being responsive to the buzz yes. and being responsive to those loudest voices, which, by the way, don't even represent the mainstream of the left, yeah. of liberals, of the Democratic Party that is, I think, the biggest audience for them. That's not even who really represents who we are. It's just the loudest and most extreme voices. Excellent piece here at Newsweek, Matt. Uh, we'll we'll make sure we get this posted out there, of course. And everyone, listen to the Beyond Politics podcast uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Matt Robeson. Uh, Matt, uh, excellent. Like I said, excellent piece here. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the time today. Matt, always a pleasure to be with you. All right, you bet. Anytime, and we'll have you back by all means. Uh, Matt Robeson, once again, Beyond Politics is a podcast. The, the opinion piece is in Newsweek. I'll post that later. Let's take a break, wrap up the show. When we do return, it's the Matt McNeil Show right here on AM 950. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. It's the Matt McNeil Show. No, I... I I, I I was I was had a front row seat for watching the Republican machine start its it, its intimidation campaign against the mainstream media. I watched this. I was at radio stations in the '90s, and we we, we would come in in the morning, and there'd be like 15 press releases talking about Bill Clinton this, Bill Clinton that, Bill Clinton this. And the funny thing was at 9.55, after the morning show was over, we would always get a fax from these same people saying, oh, by the way, we've done some fact checking. None of this is actually true. If you read it on the air, that's on you. That's not on us. But it was stuff that they were sending on out there. I mean, I know that they would go to news outlets and, you know, they, they, they would definitely go after the newspapers and, and the TV with, with the, well, if you cover this story, we're going to pull our advertising. And, you know, that, that got people to cave real quick. And I will say this, the, the news outlets who basically didn't cave, and there are not many of them, they came out on the other side looking a lot stronger, and they are hated by the right. But the reality is they're hated by the right because they can't be controlled by the right. When you have people now that it, it's not a pressure campaign, it's we got to create buzz. That's not news, dude. That's just, like I said, you need to get on E! Entertainment Television because that's where they, that belongs. Native Roots Radio is up next. We are back on a Tuesday. Go Vikes. Till then, see ya.